Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Today we have with us Jason Bedrick, who is Director of Policy for EdChoice, and Jay Green, Professor and Chair of the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. Uh, Jason and Jay and another colleague, Matthew Lee, have edited a volume of essays under the title Religious Liberty and Education. A case study of yeshivas versus New York State. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us on the podcast. All right. Well, uh, the opening paragraph covers an announcement by New York State Education Commissioner on November 20th, 2018, that specifically required private schools, which would include education, I'm, I'm sorry, which would include religious schools, uh, provide an education that is, quote, substantially equivalent to that of the public schools. What was this about? What's the background here? That's a great question. Uh, And there's actually quite a deal of questions about what substantial equivalence really means. So this is a a statute that dates back to uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, when you had a lot of uh, nativists that were concerned about Catholic education. Catholic immigrants were coming over here in very high numbers and the Protestant establishment was wary that they were bringing with them rum, Romanism, and rebellion. And so there was a move to create common schools where all children from all backgrounds would come together and learn how to be American, which really meant learn how to be Protestant. Catholics objected to this. Um, previously, there, there used to be actually a great deal of support, uh, public support, for private religious education. Uh, including Catholic schools, Jewish schools, and and other types of schools. But with the rise of the common school movement, the focus uh, was that the the government, state governments in particular, would only be funding the common schools, which were non-denominational Protestant, essentially. Uh, They taught the Protestant version of the Bible. They led students in prayer. Of course, these were Protestant prayers. And it was done in a a manner in which any Congregationalist or Baptist or Episcopalian would feel comfortable, uh, but not so much Catholics, and and to a lesser extent, Lutherans. Uh, And so what Catholics started doing is opening up their own system of schools. And then they started to advocate for public funding. They said, look, the public funds, our tax dollars, are going to the Protestant schools. They should also be going to the Catholic schools. The Protestant establishment essentially said, well, uh, that's great that you have your own schools. You're welcome to do that. But your schools are parochial schools. Your schools are just for your community. Our schools are for everyone. 
And we would be glad to take, you know, your children and basically Protestantize them in, in our schools. Uh, but our schools are for everybody. Since Catholics were running their own schools, though, some states, including the state of New York, enacted substantial equivalency statutes, which essentially said that what you're teaching in your schools has to be substantially equivalent to what's going on in the public schools. Uh, now, essentially, that law remained dormant for most of its history because the, the Catholic schools were actually happy to comply. Uh, they wanted to show that they were good Americans and our schools look just like your schools, except that they have a Catholic flavor where yours is a Protestant flavor. But otherwise, the Catholic schools were essentially modern, modeled after the common schools. Uh, fast forward, though, into the early uh, 21st century, there are complaints in New York that there are some Jewish schools, uh, Orthodox Jewish schools, actually a specific flavor of Orthodoxy, uh, Haredi Jews, uh, which are much more traditional. Sometimes they're called ultra-Orthodox, although that, that term isn't used in the community, really. These schools want something that is substantially different. And so they are spending the vast majority of the day, and in the case of uh, some schools, perhaps, even the entire day, engaged in Jewish studies, very intense, in-depth Jewish studies, uh, but uh, offer little in the way of general studies. Uh, and so they may be spending 90 minutes, or in some cases even less, on uh, English language, arts, math, science. Uh, and some of the graduates of these schools uh, were agitating in the state of New York, asking for the to come in and enforce the uh, substantial equivalency statute against these schools. Uh, they filed a lawsuit to try to force the state's hand. That was essentially that was eventually dismissed. Um, but eventually, the um, after they received a lot of bad press and a lot of pressure, the state did come in and try to enforce the statute on these schools. And essentially, the way they interpreted substantial equivalence was seat time, the amount of time that you were spending on these particular subjects. The Karate schools, as well as other Jewish schools, and, and also Catholic, Christian, and, and some secular, uh, even, even progressive schools, joined forces in a series of lawsuits. And they actually um, got the, the new regulations overturned, but on technical grounds, not on substantive grounds. So there are still many questions that remain uh, about to what extent the state can interfere in private education uh, and to what extent you know, they can impose some sort of substantial equivalency requirement, whatever that ends up meaning. Yeah. And then let me ask um, a quick question about the, uh, the students. There, there were a couple of students, what, five or six years ago, who had gone to college and they felt they were scientifically uh, unprepared. Uh, you know, one, one case that, that is mentioned in one of your pieces in, in the collection is, you know, I saw the word molecule and I'd never heard that before. I felt so inferior. Uh, and so what, what I wanted to ask is, uh, these were a couple of students. Were there a lot of other students who came forward and said that their, their high school or pre-college preparation was a real disadvantage for them? Or was it really just a small, remained a very small number of students complaining? Yeah, it's it's a little bit funny though that uh, that uh, it is it appears to be a small number of students who are unhappy with the the quality and scope of the education they received, but um, 
it's ironic that many of those same people have advanced degrees at reputable colleges and, and postgraduate degrees as well. And so that raises questions about how inferior their education must have been uh, if they were able to go that far. I mean, if, if we compare it to a very large percentage of students in the New York public school system who don't graduate high school, let alone go on to and complete uh, their bachelor's or, or graduate degrees, it's unclear uh, how inferior this education could be. Well, I, I would think that if you looked at their the, the yeshiva students' performance on something when they go to college, the collegiate learning assessment test, which tries to focus on uh, critical thinking and, and, and uh, reasoning skills and verbal skills as well, that those yeshiva students may score much more highly than the average college student. Any evidence about that? I mean, it's certainly possible we don't have a lot of great data, uh, which, which is something that uh, as researchers we're very interested in. Uh, but we just don't have that that sort of data. But uh, to Jay's point, yes, uh, a number of these there, there is a small number of students that have graduated and and are a part of this organization called Young Advocates for Fair Education. But the vast majority seem to be just happy with the system as it is. They grow up, they stay in the system, they put their own kids back into the system. And so, uh, you know, we, we've seen attacks from, let's say, the New York Times and others that say that these kids are illiterate. And it may be that when they graduate from uh, what would be the equivalent of 12th grade is in, in, in the yeshiva system, that they are not entirely fluent in the English language, particularly uh, in, in, in terms of grammar and spelling and whatnot. Most of them are actually speaking English fluently. But they are literate in multiple languages. They speak Yiddish in their homes. Uh, they are learning uh, biblical Hebrew and Aramaic in order to read these uh, ancient and medieval texts that they are engaging with at a very high level for you know many hours during the day. Uh, they usually start the school day um, an hour or two before the public schools and end uh, sometimes many hours after. Uh, some of the students, especially at the high school level, uh, will go home for dinner and then return and continue for an evening session of study. Hmm. So these are highly educated students. They are, of course, just very differently educated than what you would find in a public school. And I guess that's, that's also part of the question is, is whether it's permissible to have an education that uh, is an entree to a very different life. And so one of the difficulties, if substantial equivalency is narrowly defined and strictly enforced, is that it would effectively preclude people from a very large number of traditional lifestyles that would then become inaccessible to them, impermissible, because they could not be prepared for them. It takes quite a lot of investment over many years to become a, uh, a great scholar of Talmud and Torah, uh, just like if one wants to be a really great tennis player. It takes uh, you know many years of, of training and preparation and this effectively prohibits people from being tennis players or prohibits them from, from really a, a life of Torah and Talmud. You know, one thing that one of your contributors, Kevin Vallier, uh, brings up is how the United States has seen a real rise in secular intolerance of religion in general. Uh, he mentions the 1993 Religious Freedom Act, uh, which followed on that Supreme Court Smith decision. But the, the, that, that act passed the Senate along at 98 to 2. I can't remember the exact vote on that. That was 93. I mean, Bill Clinton was in favor of that, if I recall. And then when the state of Indiana tried to pass a state-level RIFRA, I mean, it was just 
almost the exact same thing, but at the state level a few years ago, I think it was 2015, uh, the, the, entire, the entire liberal world went nuts o- over this. Is, how much is this a, an expression of just simply secular mistrust of, again, another kind of, another kind of life? I think there's a lot to that, uh, especially because the Haredi Jews are not uh, sort of like the Amish out in the country. They are living in the middle of New York. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, there, there are so many students in the system, about 150,000 students, uh, that it would rank in the top 20, if it were a school district on its own, the top 20 most populous school districts nationwide. And it's, it's very cult- countercultural in the middle of New York. So there's a, there's a great deal, I think, of, of apprehension when you see these people living such a very different lifestyle from everybody around them. And yeah, so people, I think, are, in many cases, they say, we, we are worried about this. Just uh, go back a, a decade or two. Uh, there was a really, actually, I'd say really back to the 80s. There was a lot of concern about the rise of the Christian right and, you know, what if they take over the school system? You know, they're pushing for, in those days, you know, to return prayer in school. Uh, yes, it was mostly the liberal establishment that was, was concerned about other people that were trying to not only live their lives as they wanted to live them, but also educate their children with their values and their faith tradition. But Mark, you you also make a good point about the the kind of broad popularity of of religious protection legislation. To the broad populace, this is uh, very sensible and appealing, but it's it seems to be quite threatening to elites, and and so there is a divide there that keeps recurring, and which is also why in the case of the yeshivas in New York and, and in other places where the same issue is beginning to, to manifest itself, the divide is really between uh, elites and, and a broader populace. And so for the religious institutions to prevail and be able to continue instruction in the way that they would prefer, they really have to rally a broad electoral base and not rely on courts. For the protection, and and I think one of the things I learned while working on this book is that it's not obvious that that the free exercise clause actually protects schools from this type of state regulation. And in fact, uh, in the Pierce versus Society of Sisters case, which um, many people cite and and mention the line about how the child is not a mere creature of the state, they forget that the decision goes on to say that the state may actually substantially regulate private education and the content of it. And so the, the protection of the religious schools cannot be found in, in fully in the courts. Um, if people are concerned about this kind of issue and uh, they would have to be um, motivated electorally um, and, and, and not simply rely on elite protection from courts. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned that case. Uh, Aaron Sager, a, another contributor in involvement, he goes back to that remarkable episode. I think it was 1922 when the state of Oregon actually outlawed all private schooling. Now, do, do you think most Americans don't know about that and would be very surprised to hear that that had ever happened? Yes, I, I think that is the case. Uh, even in the education policy world, uh, there are many people who don't realize uh, what that case was about. 
uh, and uh, or the role of the case. Why don't you go ahead and give us a little background on that case? Right. So essentially, as I was, I was stating uh, before with respect to the Blaine amendments and uh, the, the push for substantial equivalency, uh, you had many nativists, particularly the KKK, that were concerned about Catholic schools opening up. And they were they succeeded in Oregon in actually banning private education. And essentially what they were doing is they were banning Catholic schools. And they were very clear about their intent. The U.S. Supreme Court a few years later in 1925 uh, ruled unanimously, as Jay said, that the child is not the mere creature of the state, and that the the uh, there's a First Amendment right, essentially, to run private schools. This was followed many years later uh, by a decision called Wisconsin v. Yoder in 1972. Uh, if you have compulsory education, uh, the, the question becomes, you know, what can the state actually require? The Amish community said that they wanted to be exempt from the high school compulsory education requirements. They were comfortable with their children essentially doing public schooling up through eighth grade. But when it came to high school, they wanted those students back working on the farm, doing Bible study, but essentially in the community. Uh, And the U.S. Supreme Court in that case, in in a six to one decision with two justices who have been recused, they ruled that the Amish people actually did have a First Amendment religious liberty exception to compulsory education. But even there, um, they left a great deal of room open for the state to regulate. Uh, they, they recognized the right for the, uh, or at least I should say a power of the state to compel education up through eighth grade. Uh, and they made a, a, a big deal about how the Amish were this very separate community unto themselves, very independent, that they didn't rely on any welfare programs. And so uh, they were more comfortable granting this exemption. Uh, and so the, the Haredi case in New York, uh, just like these other two cases, which uh, were not, uh, you know, they may have been dealing with Catholic schools and uh, the Amish community, but had broad implications for the rest of the country. Uh, the case of uh, Haredi yeshivas in New York uh, and the sorts of questions that it raises uh, has uh, very broad implications nationally. Uh, l- let me come back to the idea of the substantively equivalent. Uh, just a simple, ba- basic question. Who measures? Who, who in the state or city education department looks at these curricula and measures that, that equivalence? Who's going to do this? I mean, let me put it this way. When these decisions are made, do the private schools have any representative in the room who can sort of offer offer their side on the decision making? Uh, yes, there are uh, representatives of the private schools that, that have been involved in ongoing discussions uh, in New York with the Department of Education. Uh, ultimately, it seems that the department is going to get to decide And as I noted, because the statute itself is relatively vague and it has lied dormant for so long, they seem to have wide latitude until the courts say otherwise about how to interpret what substantial equivalence means. Uh, Is it referring to content? Is it referring to just subject matter? Uh, Is it referring to the amount of time spent in seats on a given subject? Uh, Can there be a sort of test requirement that... uh, make sure that the children graduating from these schools are at least on average meeting some certain metric. Uh, that's been entirely unclear. 
what the state has been doing is interpreting it just in terms of a seat time requirement, um, which, you know, some may say, okay, well, that, that sort of seems like maybe it's the least restrictive means, but, but, but perhaps not. And Kevin Vallier mentions this in his chapter, uh, because the schools have said, look, if, if we take seriously um, the 12 different subject areas that you want us to be teaching, uh, essentially, you, you have taken from us the entire day and you, you leave very little time for us to pursue our actual mission of uh, providing our children with a deep, immersive Jewish education. And uh, that may be unconstitutional. Uh, but where the line is drawn exactly, you know, how wide the latitude is for the state to uh, regulate what goes on in private schools and to what extent they can impose a substantial equivalency requirement uh, still remains at least uh, legally an open question. And the, 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 all the Supreme Court gave in terms of guidance was that just regulation has to be, quote, reasonable, which, of course, is a fuzzy term. Yes, everybody supports reasonable regulation. <laughs> just disagree over what's reasonable. Oh, but again, this this ultimately comes down to uh, broad political power um, and not uh, interpretation of of statutory language. Um, part of the reason why this statute has remained dormant for for the better part of a century is that there's no political motivation on anyone's part to investigate these schools or do anything about them because, for the most part, they appeared to be successful. Their graduates, for the most part, were um, happy and successful in their way of life. And um, and the communities those schools serve are well-organized, and it would be politically uh, disadvantageous to, to try to interfere with the, their fundamental way of living. The litigation has forced the issue uh, onto the agenda, and the New York Times has helped fan those claims. But ultimately, uh, what reasonable means and, and how this process will play out is going to be based on the kind of organized political power of different groups. And the fact that the, the Jewish community is joined by the Catholic schools and by um, progressive schools, private schools in New York that also seek to teach a very different curriculum, um, I think means that the yeshivas are very likely to prevail politically, um, uh, regardless of what the, the legal uh, resolution might be. Yeah. Uh, Ashley Berner, in her piece, mentions that state regulation of schools is often justified by the state's interest in managing diverse and possibly, quote, divisive populations. I don't get the sense that there was any local sense that this, that this Jewish community was, was causing tensions within, within that community, within, within New York City or, or elsewhere. Am I correct on that? I think that's right. I, the, the, uh, issue is whether failing to cover secular subjects to a, to a certain degree would be the, roughly the equivalent of abuse or neglect in a in a child welfare case. I think I think that's roughly the kind of issue that's being raised here. Is that the the students who are unhappy with the kind of education they received, and they're a small number, but they they have sincere um, and strongly felt complaints, and they they feel like it, it roughly constitutes abuse and neglect. 
to have been educated the way that they were. And so they're asking the state to intervene just as the state would intervene in the case of abuse or neglect in a family. And I, th- I think that's the kind of question that's being raised here is, is does this really constitute abuse or neglect to, uh, to devote the lion's share of one's time to religious education? Or, or is that uh, simply a way of life and people may choose that they don't want to continue that way of life and they can then pursue a different way of life? Yeah. Uh, another contributor, uh, Rita Kogenson, she goes back to the 70s and that Wisconsin Yoder case. And one thing she notes is that, that the critics of this education have a little bit of a stumbling block because uh, those students who pass through religious schooling uh, in the Amish and Hasidic schools tend to have significantly lower rates of dysfunction than do secular kids. Was this an argument that the yeshiva school people made? It's not one that they raise in the lawsuits, so far as I saw, uh, but it is one that they had been raising um, you know, on social media and in the broader public, uh, which is to say, hey, look, we're good citizens. We have very low rates of criminality. We have very low rates of divorce. Uh, we're a very family-centered community. We take care of each other. You know, why are you coming in here and, and bothering us, uh, especially when you're having such a hard time running your own schools down the street? Shouldn't you be focusing on making sure those schools run well and spend less time interfering in, in our community? So it is, it is an argument that's been made, certainly. One piece by Avi Sheik uh, in his contribution notes that after the private schools sued the state of New York and they won, and that the win was to have the state go back and rewrite these rules and regulations. But when the state did it, they, they didn't change very much at all about them. And that even led to more than 140,000 public comments uh, and objections to the, the state's really refusal to acknowledge the, the loss. What is it about state officials? They just dig their heels in. Yeah, I'll kick it to Jay in a second, but I'll I'll note that essentially the reason they lost, it was essentially a technicality. The the state, uh, the courts said, you know, there's a whole process that you have to go through before you make these sorts of rules. I mean, this wasn't legislation. This was basically an interpretation by the department. They said, if you're, you're fundamentally changing how you're going to be enforcing the law, you need to have a public comment period. And so they said, okay, well, we're going to take these same rules and regulations and we're just going to um, throw them out there again, but we're going to have a public comment period. And at that point, once the public was able to, uh, to comment through official channels, you just had this outpouring from the community saying, look, just stay out of our schools. Things are fine the way they are. And, and that included from Catholics, Protestants, homeschoolers, many more groups than, than Jewish groups, correct? Yes, it did include many of those different groups, although I will say that uh, we don't have numbers, but I, the energy was certainly in the Haredi community, which, because they are such a tight-knit community, they are a highly organized community, you know, when their school leaders said, uh, you know, we need your support here, you know, here's the link, uh, go make your comments here. You know, 
there's the critique on the one hand that they, they aren't able to function in a democratic society, but uh, the, the opposite critique is that they are too good at functioning in a democratic <laughs> society, um, organizing themselves. I mean, how many people have actually ever commented on, on legislation or, or public rules and regulations? Uh, the department uh, admitted that this was the most by far uh, comments they had ever received on some sort of rule change, which usually you only have, you know, interested parties on both sides, you know, maybe the teachers unions and uh, some administrators, lobbyists and whatnot will, will comment. Um, but to have such a massive outpouring of, of uh, public commentary, uh, it's clear that they, they stirred up a bee's nest here. But, you know, for other communities that aren't as large or well-organized, uh, for those kinds of religious communities, they may uh, be um, vulnerable to regulatory efforts um, that could interfere with their basic view of, um, of, of how they want to uh, raise their children. And uh, again, I think the, the yeshivas are likely to, to stave this off successfully, but there, there are much smaller, less well-organized religious communities that may not fare as well. Right. And it's important, therefore, that these religious communities, especially the larger ones, recognize that when there is an attack on a smaller religious community, uh, that ultimately it affects them, too. And, and that's why I think the, the Catholics and the Protestants in this case, um, they, they, they understood their history. They knew that the, uh, again, the Pierce v. Society of Sisters case was not just about Catholics and the Yoder case was not just about the Amish that this case at the end of the day is not just about Haredi Jews, that the implications of how this, uh, you know, would be determined by the courts would ultimately affect them in their own communities. Uh, last question for, for both of you. Where do things stand right now in this case? Uh, they're essentially on hold. The, the regulations are not currently being put, really not being, they are not being rigorously enforced. Uh, there was a report by the department uh, resulting from an investigation that they did uh, that they had essentially held on to for several years. Uh, they released the report, interestingly enough, I think it was like the Friday before Christmas last year when uh, it is going to garner the absolute least amount possible of attention. <laughs> and you know, it's clear that was done intentionally. Uh, that showed that you know most of these schools were were making some sort of progress on their metrics. There were a few that that seemed to not be making any progress at all, uh, and only about I think it was you know half of them they felt were making significant progress, and about half of them. Although I should note that there were 30 schools in this pool. Although at the end I think there were only 26. Some of them um, they excluded from the analysis. Uh, so it's a small number of schools in the, the grand project of uh, Haredi education. Uh, but uh, essentially, there has not been a great deal of movement since then, uh, as is to be, uh, I think, expected with the uh, massive outpouring of public support for the schools. And there's really no strong constituency against it. Uh, you essentially, those against uh, the, the school system that, that are in favor of the regulations uh, are the small number of uh, ex-Haredim who wanted reform in, the, in, their, in that community. Uh, and then, you know, their allies in the elite media, like the New York Times. But that, that does not a, a political constituency make. And, and, this, and the state report, while it, it did um, note some progress and 
uh, observed that a few schools were not making progress, it really amounted to uh, double secret probation. Uh, again, I think there's there's it's very unlikely that there's political will in the state uh, department of education or in the city's department of education to actually compel these schools to change in very uh, significant ways. And so, uh, again, I, I think that the yeshivas will prevail, but the, the issue has been put on the agenda now, and it's likely to keep coming up uh, for different religious communities all over the country, uh, especially as other as the as the type of education that these schools pursue will increasingly come into conflict with other kinds of legislation uh, that uh, addresses uh, civil rights issues. And as those controversies come to a head, we are going to see some of the smaller, less well-organized religious communities struggle uh, a lot more. And so we thought it was important to to study this instance closely, understand it, talk about its implications, so that uh, people of different religious faiths from different religious communities could think about their common interests on this, and also think about what kind of, of role of the state is reasonable and that they ought to accept. Um, and those are the kinds of issues that, that are discussed in the book. The book is Religious Liberty and Education, a case study of yeshivas versus New York State. Jason Bedrick and Jay Green, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.